May God teach you the meaning of that name, Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, it is wisdom's mystery, God with us. Sages look at it and wonder. Angels desire to see it. The plumb line of reason cannot reach halfway into its depths. The eagle wings of science cannot fly so high, and the piercing eye of the vulture of research cannot see it. God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. His legions fly apace. The black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. Let Satan come to you suddenly and do you but whisper the word, God with us, and back he falls, confounded and confused. Satan trembles when he hears that name. It is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor acknowledge his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us is the sufferer's comfort is the balm of his woe, is the alleviation of his misery, is the sleep that God gives to his beloved, is the rest after exertion and toil. God with us is eternity's sonnet, is heaven's hallelujah, is the shout of the glorified, is the song of the redeemed, is the chorus of angels, and is the everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. God with us. powerful excerpt from the Prince of Preachers, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a master of metaphor. Don't you agree? God with us. You know, I was thinking about Christmas and we're, you know, first Sunday of Advent and we're thinking about Christmas and Christmas was a gift wrapped in heaven, but it was unwrapped in a manger about 2,000 years ago. And that's really the mystery of heaven. That's what we're talking about this morning, the heaven's mystery. We're unwrapping Christmas and we're in a series and we're thinking about God with us, Emmanuel, who put on human skin and lived among us. Now, who can comprehend that? Who can fathom that reality? No human mind would have ever conceived the incarnation. Would you agree? 
You know, that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That would make no sense if Jesus is not God in the flesh. The cross would make no sense if Jesus were not God in flesh. And so Christmas, as we think about Christmas, Christmas really is heaven's mystery. You know, a scientist would have never thought about trying to save the world that way. You know, a scientist would say, we don't really need God. We can save ourselves. That's what a scientist would say. What what would a philosopher say when it came to saving the world? He would say, well, you know, I I don't even know if there is a God. I, I don't even know if I exist. I don't know if God exists. I really don't know if anything exists. I read a story about a student who took a philosophy class in college. And on the final day, when it came time for their final exam, that philosophy, philosophy, whatever that thing is, (laughs) philosophy professor put a chair on his desk and he said to his students, you've got the entire class period to use all the things I've taught you through this semester to prove to me that this chair does not exist. And so all those students begin to write feverishly, trying to give all the arguments for why that chair doesn't exist. But one student, he just took just a moment, stood right up, and went up and handed his paper to the professor. And the professor thought, you know, he didn't even try to answer the question. And then he looked down at that student's paper and had two words. What chair? (laughs) He made an A. You know, philosophy, it's all about trying to know the love of knowledge, trying to know something, but really we come to the reality, in their opinion, that we can know nothing. So much labor for so much little fruit. And then I think about the academic. How would he say we need to save the world? He would say the way you save mankind is to educate him. And that's the academic's way to save the world. And I think about how the psychologist would try to save mankind. He would say we need to build up his self-esteem. We need to tell him that there's no such thing as sin. And when he feels that guilt, we need to tell him it's somebody else's fault. That's the psychologist. Only God would and could conceive of the Incarnation. And He did. It was conceived in heaven. You know, a few years ago, a group named For Him wrote a song. Sometimes we sing it during Christmas. And uh, they wrote a song about Christmas, and it was from Joseph's perspective. And the words went like this. And standing at the manger, He saw with His own eyes the message from the angel come to life. And Joseph said, Why me? I'm just a simple man of trade. And why him with all the rulers in the world? Why her? Well, she's just a, an ordinary girl. Now, I'm not one to second guess what angels have to say. But this is such a strange way to save the world. You know, that's what it looks like from our perspective. A strange way to save the world. But that's heaven's way. That's God's way. To save the world. And so from the human perspective, it doesn't make sense. And so the writer of Hebrews begins to unwrap for us the mystery that was birthed in heaven. And so if you've got your Bibles, and I know you do, we're in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. And we're going to unwrap heaven's mystery this morning. At least we're going to begin to do that. I want you to see two main things this morning, just two. And there will be some sub-points along the way, but two main points. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the mystery of his humility. The mystery of his humility. Look at verse 9 in Hebrews Hebrews chapter 2. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. And then look at verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. 
flesh and blood. Look at verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. What does it mean that Jesus was made lower than the angels? What does it mean that Jesus had to put on flesh and blood? What does it mean that he had to be made like us in all things? Well, if you really want to understand the mystery of the humility of Jesus, the very first thing you need to realize is the greatness of God. Do you realize how great God is? We need to realize the greatness of God. Now, we learn in the Old Testament that God is great. Now, some people will say to you that the Old Testament really isn't relevant for us today. You ever heard that? But, you know, when somebody says that to you, you tell them the New Testament does not make sense without the Old Testament. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That does not make sense if you do not have Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, the Bible says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 is the prophecy of the Incarnation. John 1.1 is the fulfillment of the Incarnation. Genesis 3.15 is the prophecy of the Christmas story. John 1.1 is the fulfillment of the Christmas story. The Word became flesh. And so the Old Testament tells you of the greatness of God. And without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make sense. And God said through the prophet Isaiah... In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, God said this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Did you get that? God is great. He is not like us. And God wanted you and He wanted me to know that He is different than we are. He's very distinct. He's very distant from us when it comes to our holiness and our righteousness. He's different than we are. The Bible says that His ways and His thoughts are as far apart from ours as the heavens are from the earth. There's a great distance between us and God. He's great. You know, whenever we create gods, when we create our own gods, our own idols, you know we create them in our own image. We make them look like us. Did you know the Greeks had a god? His name was Homerus. He was the god of sexual desire. His counterpart was Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love. And so what do they do? They create gods who are sexually immoral, like us. And so that's the way we create our gods. We make them look like us. And God says, My ways are not like your ways. And my thoughts are not like your thoughts. I am different. I am distinct. I am not like you. And whenever Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, you remember the story, he led them to a place called Mount Sinai. You remember that story? And they were there at Mount Sinai where he gave them the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if you remember the story. In Exodus chapter 19, the Bible says that God told Moses, he said, you gather all the people around. Get close to the mountain, but don't touch it. He said, you gather them around because I'm going to let them see my glory. I'm going to let them see my presence descend on that mountain. But then in Exodus chapter 19, he told them this in verse 12. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. For whoever touches the mountains shall surely be put to death. God told the people, Do not come near. Do not come near. 
Because I'm different than you. And I'm letting you know I am great. What was God teaching them? He said, I am holy. I am a holy God who is different and distinct and different than you are. The theological term that we use to describe God's distinctness is transcendent. Transcendent. God transcends us. He's higher than we are. He's holier than we are. He's different than we are. He is transcendent. And so what was he teaching them? He said, when you stand in my presence, you revere me. You respect me because I am great. Everybody with me so far? Thank you, John Henry. I need a little encouragement every now and then. So God told the Israelites later, he said, I want you to build a tabernacle. And y'all know the tabernacle story. They built a tabernacle, and there was a room in the tabernacle. We talked about this previously. But there was a room in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And what separated the people from the Holy of Holies was a veil. And behind that veil was the symbol of God's presence. It was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments. And on top was the mercy seat. And there it was in the Holy of Holies. And there was a veil that separated sinful man from holy God. There was a veil that separated us from God. Do you see the distinction? God is not like us. He's great. And you couldn't just go into the Holy of Holies whenever you wanted to. In fact, you couldn't go in at all unless you were the high priest. And only the high priest could go one time a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. And so it was a serious thing for the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies, and he needed to go in a pure fashion. He could not go carelessly. He could not go, he could not go in there sinfully. He could not go in there casually. If he did, he would not come out alive because he was getting ready to go into the Holy of Holies. And so it was a very serious thing when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. Sometimes they would put bells on the bottom of the high priest's robe so that when he went into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people, the people could listen to see if those bells were still ringing. Because if those bells stopped ringing, then atonement was not going to be made for them. And they wanted to make sure that the bells were ringing because if they weren't ringing, that means he wasn't breathing. And they wanted to make sure that the bells were ringing. And sometimes they would take a, a rope and sometimes they would tie it around that priest's ankle so that if he ever stopped breathing, they could drag his body out and retrieve his body. Do you understand the difference between us and God? He's great. And God was using those images to let us know that he is the great God. And you'll never understand the humility of Christ until you understand the greatness of God. The point God's making is He's transcendent. He's different than we are. He's to be revered and to be respected. That's who God is. Whenever I was at the University of South Carolina, and I know for some of you, you think about yesterday, and you see all the things that are going wrong with South Carolina. You know, we can't win a football game. That's okay. But I will let you know that God did some amazing things at South Carolina when I was there. He used that time to be a transformation period in my life. And so I was surrendering to Christ at that time and really wanted to serve Him. I wanted to follow Him. And there was a singer, a Christian singer by the name of Steve Camp. And I'd never really heard contemporary Christian music much at that time, but I listened to him. And Steve Camp wrote a song. And it was called Stranger to Your Holiness. And the more I heard that song, I realized I identified with it. I don't know if you could identify with it, but I certainly did. And these are the lyrics to that song. And in that song, he talked about how the closer I get to God, the more, the more I see I'm different than he is. And listen to the words. It says, Hear my cry of desperation, as I see the wickedness of my ways. You alone are my salvation. 
And Lord, I've learned this one thing to be true. That the closer I get to you, the more I see I'm a stranger to your holiness. You ever feel that way? I'm a stranger to your holiness. If you're ever going to understand the mystery of Jesus' humility, you need to understand the greatness of who God is. He is the great transcendent God who became flesh. He is a transcendent God who became imminent and put on flesh and blood and became like us. The distant God who came near. Do you understand the greatness of God who came near? He's Emmanuel, God with us. Doesn't that make a difference? And if you want to understand the, the humility of Christ, you need to understand the greatness of God, but you also need to understand the glory of man. You say, what is the glory of man? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you, that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you set him over the works of your hands. And in the Bible, in your Bible, those words might be italicized. If they are italicized, it's letting you know that he is quoting, the author is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm chapter 8. It was a psalm of David. And David asked the question, What is man that you are mindful of him? It's kind of like the little boy I heard about who was praying the, the model prayer one day. He said, Our Father who art in heaven, how do you know my name? <laughs> you ever feel that way? How do you know my name? What is, what is man that you're mindful of him? I can only imagine David one night, maybe one midnight, sitting under the stars and gazing into the majesty of heaven and say, what is man that you're mindful of him? When I see the glory of God in creation, what is man that you're mindful of him? Have you ever sat under a midnight star, uh, sky and seen the canopy of stars above you? How amazing it is. And then just wonder, I'm so small. In the grand scheme of the universe, what is man that you're mindful of him? You ever ask that question? What is man? I tell you what, if, if you've never done that, maybe you've done this, go to Google Earth and zoom in on your house. And you say, oh, there's my house. And then just zoom out real quick. And you get reality how small you really are. In the grand scheme of everything, how small we really are. What is man that you are mindful of him? Remember years ago when I was doing my certification dives for scuba diving, I had to go, I was out in the ocean, and I remember the first time I dropped down, I realized, you know, I'm a very small thing in this ocean. And there are things in this ocean that can have me for lunch. How small we really are. And all I could look around and see, all I saw was ocean. What is man? that you are mindful of Him. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7 says this, God made you a little lower than the angels. But listen what He did. He crowned you with glory and honor. And He set you over the works of His hands. God crowned us with glory and honor. How did He do that? He made us in our image. You are created in the image of God. He crowns you with His image. You are an image bearer. You bear God's image. So we bear the image of God. That's part of His design. But not only that, the Bible says that part of our glory comes from 
The fact that He gave us dominion. He set us over the works of His hands. You know, the Bible doesn't say He set angels over the works of His hands. He said He set man over the works of His hands. He gave man dominion over His creation. He crowned us with glory and honor. And so we've been created in the image of God. We, we have dominion. But man's glory also comes from our dignity. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them the dignity to choose between good and evil. He gave them dignity. He created us with that kind of dignity. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it tells how the Gentiles, who didn't have access to Scripture, didn't have access to the law, they knew the law. How did they know it? The Bible says because they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And that's what it means to have human dignity. God has written His law on our hearts. We know right from wrong because He's written His law on our hearts. Now Adam and Eve had the ability to choose between good and evil. But they're different than we are. They had the ability not to sin. They had real choice. They didn't have a sin nature. But then something happened to God's design. Something happened to our dominion. Something happened to our dignity. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God's design was damaged. We still bear the image of God, but somehow that image has been marred in some ways. The the design has been damaged. Our dominion has been diminished. You say, well, don't we still have dominion? No, our dominion has been diminished. How many of you fishermen can go out fishing and tell that fish to bite your lure? How many of you fishermen have ever been fishing and got skunked? Well, you know, Jesus never got skunked. Whenever he went fishing, he always got a catch. He would tell Peter, go let your net down, Peter. And somehow Jesus had dominion and told those fish to get in that net. Jesus had dominion. Now you say, well, man still has dominion. I mean, we can train animals and we can can tame wild horses. We still have dominion. Yes, we can train dogs and we can tame horses. But we can't tame our tongues and we can't control our thoughts. We really don't have dominion because our dominion has been diminished. We've lost the dignity that Adam and Eve had in the garden. We're born sinners. We can't help but sin. Now we know right from wrong, but we can't stop from sinning because we're born with a sin nature. And so we struggle. We are image bearers, but we also bear Adam's image. We're born children of Adam. We can't help but sin. Have you ever noticed you don't have to spank a child to make him do bad things? No, you have to discipline a child to make him do the right things, don't you? Because we have that sin nature. We bear Adam's nature. And so you have to discipline your children to do the right thing. So we bear God's image, but we also bear Adam's image. And Adam's image is a sin nature. Now don't miss this. Our great God put on human flesh and became like us so that he could restore the glory that was lost in the garden. That's what he came to do. He humbled himself and he put on flesh and Jesus came to restore the image. He came to restore the dominion. He came to restore our dignity. Now you think about that. God became man and lived among us. Emmanuel, God is with us. He's with you and he's with me. You know, Jesus became like us in every way except this. He did not have a sin nature. Because he wasn't born in Adam. He was born by the Holy Spirit. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that's why the virgin birth is so important. Jesus did not have an Adam nature. He didn't have a sin nature. 
Now, none of you chose to be born, did you? None of you. Only Jesus chose to be born. Only Jesus chose when to be born and where to be born. Jesus chose to put on human flesh and to lower himself and become the God-man. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The mystery of humility that the king of kings would make himself of no reputation and become the lowest servant of all. That is the mystery of humility. The one who created the angels made himself lower than the angels. Can you imagine? The great God who humbled himself and became a lowly servant. That's the mystery of heaven. And you know, so many people today are so proud. We're so proud sometimes that we won't do the simple, small things because we're just a little bit above them. We're just too big for them. There's just certain things that we will not stoop to do. You know, some people say, well, you know, I'm just too important. I don't think I'm, I think I don't need to be a greeter. That's, that's not something I need to be, you know, using my time for. There's something better I can do. I'm too big to be an usher. I'm too big to do those small things. I heard somebody say one time, if you're too big to do the small things, you're too small to do the big things. And some people walk around with their chin up and their chest out thinking that there's some places of service that they're just too big for. I wonder what Jesus would think about that. You know, the night before Jesus was crucified, he sat having a meal with his disciples. And none of his disciples would do what needed to be done. They all knew, but nobody would do it. And so Jesus got up and put on that servant's towel. And he went to every single disciple's feet and he washed them. Those dirty, smelly, stinky feet. Jesus washed them. Those cruddy, dirt-stained, animal feces-stained feet. Jesus, the King of Kings, knelt before them and washed them. Humbled himself. And then Jesus said to his disciples, I have given you an example to follow. I've just given you the attitude of humility for you to emulate in your own life. That's what humility looks like. And some people feel like they're too big to do certain things. But if you're too big to do the small things, you're bigger than Jesus. Because Jesus did it. And he did it willfully. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Jesus said this, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful in much. But he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. If you won't do the little things, you can't be trusted with the big things. That's what Jesus said. You know, I was working at Advanced Auto Parts, and I was one of the managers there. And so uh, sometimes our company would hire somebody for our store, and we might not have an input sometimes. And they hired a guy. He was the parts pro. They hired him as the parts pro. And I didn't work with him the first day he worked at our store. Somebody else did. He was under another manager that that day. But the very next day, I worked, and so when I came in, Uh, The parts pro informed me. He said, that manager last night made me put out stock. I am the parts pro. I don't put out stock. 
And I said, well, uh, this is my introduction. I said, well, my, my shirt has manager on it. If the commode needs to be cleaned, I'll clean it. And so will everybody else. Because that's what God's given us the responsibility to do is be servants. And if we won't clean commodes, then we're bigger than Jesus. Jesus came willing to clean the commodes or do whatever it took as a servant. He came in humility. The great God, the creator, the king who humbled himself. And he expects no less from us. The mystery of humility. The second thing, and this will be shorter, because I know you're thinking time's going by for that one point. This is the second point. The mystery of his ministry. The mystery of his ministry. Look at verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God, underline this, might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death for everyone. There are some people who believe that Jesus didn't die for everybody. They don't think that Jesus died for everyone. They think he just only died for a select few. But the writer of Hebrews said that Jesus tasted death for everyone. All of us. It's the same thing that the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, 6, he said this, All we like sheep have gone astray. Who's gone astray? All of us. All of us have turned our own way. But then he says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The same all in the beginning is the same all in the end. All of us have gone astray and He has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He tasted death for all of us. Jesus had to be made like us so that he could taste death for us. Look at verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. How many of you propitiate? None of you. You know what that word propitiation means? It's a, it's a term that means to satisfy. It means to satisfy the wrath of God. To appease God's wrath. And you can't do that. Only Jesus could satisfy the wrath of God. And He did it for you and me. Now some of you, you know what, you know what your sin deserves and my sin deserves? It deserves an eternity in hell. That's what the Bible says. God's wrath for our sin. You say, well, I haven't really had that many sins. Well, there are no sanctified sins. They all deserve eternity in hell. That's what we deserve. But Jesus stepped in and became our substitute. He took our place. He drank the cup of wrath for you and me. He became your substitute and my substitute. He became sin for me and for you. A substitute. You know, I was thinking about Hunter and Reagan holding their baby. How many babies we've had at First Baptist? I love it. Don't you love all these babies being born? It's exciting. But as I was thinking about Jesus coming and laying in a manger. And those tiny little hands, those rosy pink cheeks, pink cheeks, that soft baby skin. Can you imagine if that was your baby? And you knew one day some rusty spikes were going to be driven through his hands and feet. And you know those little tiny feet would one day grow up and they would carry him to Calvary to die for the sins of man. Can you imagine? And that's what Jesus did. He bore God's wrath for our sin. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And I love this. And by His stripes, we are healed. Jesus didn't just die for you. Jesus died as you. 
He is your substitute. And I want you to listen very closely for a moment because I don't want you to miss this. Sometimes we take the substitutionary atonement of Christ for granted. Sometimes we think we take the salvation that Christ gives us for granted, but the Bible says that angels marvel at the salvation of God through Jesus. They marvel. In 1 Peter chapter, uh, whatever that is, chapter 1, verse 12, it says this. The angels desire to look into those things. Do you know why? They long to know the salvation of Jesus. Do you know why? Because Jesus did not put on angel whatever being. He didn't die for an angel. Jesus came to redeem us. Humanity. And so when they look at that, they marvel that God would put on flesh and redeem sinful man. And so they marvel. They long to look into it. A salvation that we so often take for granted. You know, the angels, you know what they sing? They sing, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. They can sing that song, but they'll never sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. An angel can never sing the song of salvation because Jesus didn't die to save them. He died to save us. And that's why God sent His Son to atone for us. And you know, that's why God sends us out to be His witnesses and not angels. Because we are the redeemed. And let the redeemed say so. And not only did Jesus taste death for us, but He also feels our suffering. Look at verse 10. Uh, verse 10 it says, Jesus, the captain of our salvation, was made perfect through suffering. You say, well, how can Jesus be made perfect? He was already perfect. The Bible says He was made perfect through suffering. How? Look at verse 16. For indeed, He does not give aid to angels, but He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Look at verse 18. For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus was made perfect through suffering so that He could identify with us and be able to come alongside us and give us aid. What does that mean? Jesus is not immune from your suffering. He's not immune from your heartache. And let me, let me just say this. Jesus knows what it's like to be a teenager. Jesus knows what it's like to have a busy schedule. Can you imagine how many people were pulling on him every day? He knows what it's like to have a busy schedule. He knows what it's like uh, to be uh, pulled in every different direction. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He's felt the temptations of Satan. He knows your suffering. He knows mental exhaustion and physical exhaustion. He knows spiritual warfare. Jesus knows it. He knows your pain. He's not immune. Our God is Emmanuel. God with us. He's not immune. He's the faithful high priest who feels our pain and comes to your aid. Bob Weber was the former president of the Kiwanis International. He told this story. He said he was speaking in a small town one day and he slept at this, he was staying overnight in this farmer's home and a little boy while they were sitting, they said they just sat on the porch. They were just sitting back and relaxing. And a little, the newspaper boy came riding up. And he threw the newspaper on the porch. And, and he saw a sign that the farmer had advertising puppies for sale. He said, well, sir, I see you have some puppies for sale. So he got off his bicycle. He said, how much are you, are you asking for your puppies? The farmer said, 25, $25. So 
So the boy kind of hung his head. He knew he couldn't swing $25. And he said, okay, well, can I at least just look at them? And uh, the farmer, he whistled real quick, and the mama dog came running around uh, with four little puppies in tow. And then uh, finally a fifth one came running around the corner, and he was crippled. He was kind of maimed, and so uh, the little boy said to the farmer, what's wrong with that little dog? He said, well, that, that little dog's been injured. Uh, well, I say injured. He was, he's, uh, he's crippled. He was um, born without a hip joint, and so he's never going to have that leg uh, function like it should. So he's always going to be crippled. And so that little boy went over to that farmer. He said, uh, I got 50 cent. He said, I want to give you 50 cent. I want to pay every day that I can pay for that puppy. And the farmer said, I don't think you understand what I just said. I said, this dog's never going to be able to run, jump. He's never going to be able to play. He's always going to be a crippled, crippled dog. Why would you want that crippled dog? And that, that moment, that little boy paused for a moment. Then he pulled up his pants leg. And when he did... He had a steel brace strapped on with leather, holding that crooked leg straight. He said, because that puppy's, that puppy's going to need somebody who understands him and could help him through life. And when Jesus put on human flesh, he did it so he could understand you and help you through life. And so when you pray, you pray to the God who understands you. When you pray, you pray to the God who knows temptation. You, when you pray, you pray to the God who understands pain and hurt and heartache and death. You pray to the God who feels, to the God who cares. His name is Emmanuel, and he's God with us. And I want to give you one last thing. It'll take me about 30 seconds. You okay with that? Last thing. Jesus disarms the power of Satan in our lives. Look at verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power over death, and that is the devil. Satan has been disarmed. Satan has no power over you except what you give him. That's the only power that Satan has over your life. But you know how Satan manipulates you? How he manipulates me? He makes you fear death. He always throws death in your face. And people don't like to talk about death because we're, we're fearful of death. And Satan knows that, and so he uses death as a weapon against us many times. And what, what the Bible says that Jesus has overcome death, and there's no fear in death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Paul said, Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you know Him, then you have no fear because He is bigger than death. He has conquered death for you and me. And I do believe He gives us grace when it comes to that moment. We have victory. I want to give you, it's just as an invitation, a, a thought, a question. The writer of Hebrews asked this question. I didn't ask it. He did. And it's a question that I don't have the answer to. It's a question that God doesn't have the answer to. It's in verse 3. It says this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. Now, how can we be saved if we neglect Heaven's mystery. God's salvation. You know what you have to do to neglect something? 
You just ignore it. You know, people can sit in church every single Sunday morning, Sunday after Sunday, and neglect Christ. You don't even have to reject Christ. All you've got to do is neglect Christ. You know, my yard, I just neglect it. Guess what happens? Changes, doesn't it? Weeds grow up. Everything gets overgrown. If you're married, if you want to destroy your marriage, you don't have to, you don't have to reject your spouse. You just neglect your spouse. Neglect. You don't have to reject Christ. All you have to do is neglect Christ, and you will miss God's gift of salvation. And I'll just say this. If I was in this room this morning, and I had never followed Christ, I would not leave this building until I had. I'd make that decision today. How will you escape if you neglect such a great salvation? The other thing you might want to think about this morning is are you taking your salvation for granted? Angels desire to look into what we have. Do you just take it for granted? You know, this past week was Thanksgiving. You know, this will be a great morning to come and stand or kneel at this altar and just thank God for His salvation, for saving you. You will never feel hell's fury because you are saved by grace through faith. That would be a good thing to come thank God for, wouldn't it? Or maybe this morning you can sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound but you haven't told anybody else about it. And maybe this morning you need to say, God, give me boldness. Give me opportunity. Help me to step out and be a witness for Christ. You have given me the mission to share the gospel. Not angels, but me. And maybe this morning you need to ask God to give you opportunity, boldness, to do that, to tell others about the amazing grace that you found. Would you pray with me this morning? So, Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. Thank you for coming in flesh and being our substitute. Thank you for coming in humility, which we can never fathom. Thank you for um, paying our sin debt and standing in our place of being our substitute. Thank you for providing such a great salvation. And so, Lord, we come to this moment when we have the opportunity to, to make decisions. And, Lord, maybe there's a decision that needs to be made that I haven't even mentioned, but... Somebody here knows what decision they need to make. Give them courage and boldness to step out and put feet to their decisions. Let them act. Give them courage. Lord, if it's somebody who doesn't know you and they need to know Christ, Lord, give them boldness. Lord, if it's somebody here who realizes I've not really been sharing the gospel, they need to, Lord, give them the boldness to stand out and come out and make a, uh, a commitment to you this morning. Maybe it's somebody who just has been taking their salvation for granted and they just need to give you thanks. Give them courage. We come to this time and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our song of invitation and you respond how the Lord leads you? To every question, the one solution.